0: Our gospel reading for this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Almighty gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, Grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Be seated. We love Jesus and coffee because each gives us a warm, cozy feeling. We're not so crazy about Moses and milk, because while they might be good for us, they're a little bit hard to swallow, especially skim milk. Moses is the lawgiver, and no one likes a lawyer. No one trusts a politician. Jesus, on the other hand, was a preacher of love, which is always welcome. We want a God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God who loves the world, not one who is making up rules for us to obey. And so when we hear, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And so when we hear that, we sigh with contentment that we are Christians, not Israelites. And surely this is wonderful. It's wonderful that Jesus loves us and encourages us to abide in his love. What idiot would say that's a bad idea? But as Jesus explains this love, we get a dramatically different picture than the love that we see in the world. Now, there's a lot of content in these short scriptures, and today we're only going to discuss three points. Uh, First, Christ's love for us, and then Christ's love in us, and then loving joyfully. Jesus invites us to abide in his love and goes on to explain what that means. (laughs) First, Jesus declares that he loves us in the same way that the Father has loved him. The Father's love for the Son was abundantly displayed in the Gospel accounts. The Father spoke from heaven and affirmed the Son on two occasions. Even Jesus' enemies recognized that God's power was at work in him. If there are any perfect relationships anywhere, certainly the love among the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the Godhead is that perfect relationship. The love between the Father and the Son was pure, powerful, passionate, and perfect. We, on the other hand, have a sliding scale of loves. We love ice cream and donuts, but not as much as steak and wine. Our love for our families is of a different nature than that, But although we love our children dearly, we don't love them quite as much as our spouses. And speaking of that sliding scale, our children may slide up and down that scale depending upon how they're behaving at the moment. We love some friends more than others, and although Mr. George loves disc golf mightily, he loves his friends more than disc golf. So it seems natural, almost necessary, that no matter how passionately Jesus might love us, It would, it could, it would be uh, less or of a different nature than the love of the Father. But no, this short sentence packs an explosive reality. How can it be? How is it possible that Jesus could love a created being, a sinful created being, the same way the Father loves the Son? I don't know. It's just simply (laughs) mind-boggling. This is a statement that demands not understanding but worship. However it works, Jesus' love for us is too wonderful to grasp. But Jesus doesn't call us to understand his love. He calls us to abide in it, to relish it, enjoy it, be comforted, to be encouraged by Jesus' love. Now, lest we think that we're such blundering sinners that we got into this by mistake— like thinking that you're in the dining room for co-workers and discovering yourself seated with a board of directors. Jesus reminds us that he called us. <laughs> you know, this being loved by Jesus, that wasn't our idea. That was Jesus's idea. We didn't sign up for this. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Again, characteristic of Jesus. He's, he's short and right to the point. You, it wasn't you. It was me. Jesus says, I did it. I chose you. Yeah, you, with all your silliness and sin and failure. Jesus had a choice. He looked out over the world. He saw all all kinds of people. And finally he said, Yeah, I'll take that one. That's the one that I want. And that's you. He chose you. It's not that he's stuck with us. He's not doesn't love us out of obligation. It's not that he's stuck with us and being God and all he's determined to do right by us. No. Jesus, doesn't, Jesus' love is not this grim determination. Jesus loves us because he wants to love us. Jesus chose to love us. But it gets better. Perhaps the image forming in your mind is of the dog pound. Is that what you all are thinking about? Uh, some of us want a healthy, pedigreed, frolicsome pet, but other, others of us find our heartstrings tugged or even yanked by the, the runt, the orphan puppy, uh, the, 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 the adorable creature without any uh, brothers or, or without a mother or brothers, alone in a cold, heartless pen. We feel an overflow of love for this adorable creature. We want to take it home, give it a warm supper and a cozy bed and a happy family. But no, how no matter how strong your love for, for him, he's still a dog. He might be man's best friend in a metaphorical sense, but he'll never share your thoughts and dreams. He'll never share your joys and sorrows. He'll never hold a conversation with with you. But Jesus does. Jesus not only calls us, he calls us friends. Real friends, not metaphorical friends. Friends he can talk to. Friends with whom he can share. Friends with whom he can share his hopes and dreams. His joys and sorrows. And, and those are in the Bible, you know. He shared those with us. And secrets. Do you have a friend that you have told all your secrets to? Jesus said lots of things when he was here on earth, and I'm sure some of them were trivial, like pass the salt, and, <laughs> hurry up, Peter, let's, let's get going. <clears throat> but said, Jesus said much that was profound. <clears throat> Probably most of us don't tell Our friends all of our secrets because we don't think they would understand. Um, Well, do you think the, the do you think the disciples understood everything that Jesus said? Of course not. Yet that didn't stop Jesus from telling his disciples everything. No secrets. No wonder the disciples wandered around in a state of confusion all the time. Jesus didn't treat the disciples as students or employees or subjects or creatures. Jesus' love treats us as friends. Now how can you measure love? Is it by the quality of the chocolates, the number of roses, the size of the diamond, or is this talk of measuring love just trashy? Perhaps one of those things, perhaps love is one of those things which is too precious to, 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 to measure, and attempting to measure it tarnishes it. <laughs> well, you're all wrong, says Jesus. Love can definitely be measured, but not by chocolates or roses, not even by diamonds diamonds or rubies, love can be measured by death. The greatest love is dying love. And I think we can safely say that no one here has loved quite that much. You're all here and alive. But Jesus has. Jesus has loved us with the unsearchable love of the Trinity. Jesus loves us not as creatures or subjects, but as friends. And Jesus loves us with the maximum love, the love that brings death. So when Jesus says, abide in my love, this is the love that he means. Jesus is not inviting us into a casual dating relationship. Jesus is all in with you. His love moved him to choose you, to call you, to die for you, and his love will never waver. So wonderful. This love of Jesus is so amazing, it makes us weep or laugh or both. And then Jesus goes and messes it all up. He gives us a commandment you can tell who's never read their bible much i don't think most people even know that jesus said these things but there it is a commandment and here we go again dumped with more rules from some far-off deity but jesus is very crafty he doesn't just simply dump this commandment on us and walk away jesus intricately weaves this commandment into his declaration of love sort of feels like asking your girlfriend to make dinner for you after you give her a diamond ring Jesus is not satisfied with a pretty good attempt at love. A good faith effort now and then is not enough. Jesus is blunt and explicit. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's right. Jesus expects us to love others with the same love that he loves us. The choosing, intimate, friendship, divine, deadly love. Now, if that doesn't seem outrageous to you, you haven't been paying attention. It's hard enough to consistently love those of us who are dearest to us, but even then we waver, and how in the world are mere mortals to love like God? If we all died for love, we'd all be dead. And hold on, you say, uh, you're just blowing this out of proportion. Jesus is simply calling us to love sacrificially. Well, that's certainly for sure, but let's read verse 12 again. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's not patronize Jesus. If Jesus had wanted to say love sacrificially, he was certainly capable of doing that. Jesus knew the Aramaic language, but Jesus did not advise us to make a strong effort to love sacrificially. He didn't advise anything at all. He issued a command. These are orders, not discussion points. The only acceptable response to a command is, yes, sir. And the command was to love with a deadly divine love. How is that even possible? Well, the correct answer is that it's impossible. But it gets worse. This command is impossible for mortals and their, with their family and friends, but that's, that is not what Jesus says. Jesus commands us to love one another, and that includes everyone. In the context of this of Jesus' teaching here, though the other ones are those in his kingdom, that means other Christians. Now, this command has implications for non-Christians as well, but that's a secondary point. But but listen, this is positively frightening. One another, everyone. That that, that's going to include rude, mean, ignorant, irritable people. That's going to include kids who don't sit still in the service, old people who sing off key. The cheapskater brings hot dogs to the potluck, the compulsive rule followers and the scandalous rule breakers, the shamefully timid, the rude, the, the rudely brash. That includes everybody. That, that includes people who are really, you know, awful to be around. Last year in the Adult Sunday school class we established that God is at work sanctifying everyone. God will not allow sinful habits to remain in any of his children. The trouble is God takes his good old time about it. Decades even. So here we are, stuck for the present with all manner of awful people, and Jesus, the shock of it, Jesus demands that we love these people with a deadly divine love. And what is divine love? It's pure, powerful, passionate, perfect. Yep, that's the orders, and to the death. Jesus orders you to die for other Christians. It's not a request, it's an order. And finally, Jesus equates love for him with obedience to his commands. In other words, if you don't love each other this way, we cannot legitimately claim to love Jesus. At this point, Jesus seems not to be proclaiming the gospel as condemning us to eternal slavery. Is there any good news in any of this? Jesus told the disciples before he died that he had a lot more to say. So later the apostle John wrote more of Jesus' message to us in his letters where he continued teaching about love. Well, Jesus doesn't make it any easier in John's letters. John's letter repeats and reinforces what Jesus said in the gospel account, and then Jesus (coughs) adds insult to injury. After posing this impossible command and dressing it up as love, Jesus says his commands are not burdensome. What? You've got to be kidding. All commands are burdensome. That's why we bristle at commands and work hard to cut corners and avoid them. And as we've said, this command is particularly onerous if we take it seriously. And then to say, oh, by the way, it's not that hard, that just comes across as grossly insensitive. Well, and here we come into a collision with the facts. A few verses earlier in the epistle reading, the apostle John wrote, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Is Jesus the Christ, the promised Messiah, who would come to set people free, to save the Gentiles, to redeem the world? Is Jesus the Son of God? More to the point, can Jesus be trusted? Well, most people would glibly say yes, but if Jesus is trustworthy, that means that he always tells the truth, which means that loving God and each other are legitimately intertwined. We're under the impossible command, and it is if Jesus is telling the truth, not burdensome. Is it possible that we are able to love each other as Jesus loves us in a non-burdensome way? Instead of being grossly insensitive, might that verse be offering us hope? But there is more. Back in the gospel reading, Jesus said that his purpose in saying these things was to bring joy to us, not just a sample of happiness, full joy. Jesus says, and you have to decide if you believe him, that it is joyful pleasure to love each other with a divine sacrificial love. Is that what you want? Do you wish for joy? Are you longing for full, deep, satisfying joy? But are you instead going through life beaten down and miserable a lot of the time? Jesus says, and you have to decide if you'll believe him. that joy can be yours, and the way to get joy is to love each other as he loves us. Well, that's a lot to swallow, even if Jesus is saying it. This message contradicts everything we've experienced in life. No one else is saying these sort of things. It makes no sense. Let's, let's be honest this morning. Well, at least I'll be honest. Uh, this message sounds to me like nonsense that only fools would accept. Now, maybe you're holier than I am. Uh, You you probably are. But I'll bet that a lot of you are thinking uh, a lot of the same things. And that's why the next verse in John's letters says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Folks, you've been lied to, and it's not by Jesus. All of your life, every day, every hour of the day, the world has been telling you the joy comes by pursuing your dreams and accomplishing your goals. You are being told constantly that you will be a miserable failure if you do not assert yourself. You need to get the best education, land the best job, marry a beautiful, handsome, sexy, prosperous spouse. Your body must be fit. Your technology must be up to date. You have to be following the latest Netflix series. This is the path to joy. Other paths lead to miserable failure. And it's displayed everywhere. In in TV, radio, magazines, everyone you talk to and interact with has this conviction woven into the fabric of their being and their consciousness. And that's all that you encounter. That's the the only perspective that, that you see. And then when Jesus says that joy comes through loving each other with a deadly divine love, it's Jesus who sounds like he's nuts. But the children of God overcome the world. We who are born of the Spirit come to recognize that we've been the victims of terrible, vicious lies, and we reject those lies in favor of the truth. But it's not easy. When Jesus says we overcome the world, that implies that there's a struggle, and you feel that struggle, don't don't you? It might be non-burdensome to obey Jesus' commands, but it's hard to believe that that's the case. So John continues, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You began this new life in Christ by believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died to save you from your sin, and you continue the Christian life believing that Jesus tells the truth. All day, every day, all your life, you choose to believe Jesus instead of the world. The world says, you must look like Tom Brady, but Jesus says, you must talk to the lonely widow next door. The world says, you must get a high-paying summer job to enhance your application to law school, but Jesus says, you must work at a camp for inner-city kids. The world says, only losers are missing out on the latest Netflix series, but Jesus says, you will actually enjoy spending a morning cleaning up at church. All day, every day, you are confronted with two opposing demands, from the world and from Jesus. The demands of the world make sense. They look promising but you cannot obey both. So who will you believe, Jesus or the world? The world looks right. It's only by faith that we overcome the world. We say, I know the world's way looks better. It seems more sensible. It makes sense. But Jesus always tells the truth. So I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow what he says. And if your friends say, you're crazy. What you're doing makes no sense at all. And your friends will say that. It will be impossible to prove that you're making the right choice. You'll never persuade them. You'll never convince them that, that what you're doing is, is the best thing. Because it's only by faith that you overcome the world. Only by believing in Jesus, by trusting in his words, can you withstand the, the world's pressures. And as you choose over and over to believe Jesus rather than the world, the lies become more obvious and the truth of Christ becomes more sure. Now, did you notice that we've, in effect, added another command? So now we're called to love each other and to overcome the world. So now we've got two commands on the table. It's no wonder that the Christian life is so difficult and Christians look so exhausted. All these commands, in addition to the subtle expectations of our friends, Jesus says this "This is the path to joy, but honestly, it's not how many Christians experience these things. And that's because they're trying to live the Christian life by the world's means. It's hard enough to fight a determined enemy, but when you're on his ground trying to use his weapons against him, it's it's just overwhelming. Or to put it another way, many Christians attempt to obey Christ in their own power, in, in the power of their own ability, their own flesh, and no one is strong enough. No one has enough faith to overcome the world in his own strength. On our own, we're helpless against the overpowering forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you've been following this message and do, if you do believe the words of Jesus and leave here resolving to obey his commands, you will fail. You will be beaten down, exhausted, run over, chewed up, spit out, by the relentless demands of obedience. Your commitment and your good intentions will get you nowhere. You need help. You need supernatural help. You need Jesus. And not just the commands of Jesus. You need Jesus in person. Now, Jesus didn't give his new commandment in a vacuum. (laughs) This commandment is part of his message, which began in John chapter 15, verse 1, and the overall passage includes a fact and a broader command. The command which encompasses the new commandment to love one another is Abide in me. Verse 4. Jesus says that we should abide in him. Jesus discusses this nature of this abiding in the first eight verses of chapter 15. And then he shows how that works out in human relationships. Jesus introduces the new commandment by saying, abide in my love. The new commandment is possible, and it's only possible as we abide in Jesus and in his love. Outside of Jesus, outside of Jesus' love, this commandment is a burden, a terrible burden. The reality is that those who are born of the Father are in Jesus, just as a branch is in a vine. The vine supports and nourishes the branch. If the branch becomes separated from the vine, it withers and dies and is useless. So Christians are supported and nourished by Jesus. If we were to be separated from him, we would wither and die and become useless. God is always pruning his church. Eventually he will cut out those Christians who do not believe in Jesus, but God will never cut out those who do believe in Jesus. God prunes us, cutting away the dead and useless twigs, so that we might flourish and be healthy and fruitful, but God will never cut us off. The fact is that Christians abide in Jesus. We can no more change that than a branch can change its position. A branch cannot decide to join the vine. You didn't decide to join Jesus. Jesus called you. Now, in the mystery of God's providence, we do make choices and they make a difference, but our choices don't change the fact that God chose us and placed us in Jesus. The word abide means permanent residence. The uh, Franchetti children abide in the Franchetti home. They live there. They sleep there. They eat there. They do their schoolwork there. That's, That's where you find them. Benjamin does not abide in our home. He has an apartment in Pittsburgh. If you come to our house and see Benjamin, he's just visiting. He's not abiding there. So when Jesus says that we abide in him, it's a permanent condition. It never changes. We're connected to Jesus all the time, and nothing can yank us away. We're constantly being supported, nourished, and comforted by Jesus. And and in those moments where you feel as though you aren't, again, that's the world, the flesh, and the devil lying to you. Because it's true all the time. We're always abiding in Jesus. We're always being supported, nourished, and comforted by him. It's a fact, an aspect of salvation. Circumstances do not change this. We might might go through rough times when we feel God is distant from us. We might feel that at times that Jesus doesn't care about us. But the fact is that believers are secure in Jesus. The fact is that we always abide in Jesus. Now, the command is to abide in Jesus. In other words, to bring our thoughts and feelings and actions into line with the fact. Often we don't think and feel and act as though we're in Jesus. We think sinful thoughts, our emotions run crazy, our behavior is not Christ-like. We're out of sync with reality, and it messes with us. It messes with us real bad. Think about this. Imagine Philip showing up at Denise's house for dinner one night. Ken walks in and says, Hi, Philip, what brings you here? And Philip says, well, having, I'm having dinner with my wife, as he points to Denise. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> is it a, Now, let's think about this. Is it a good thing for Philip to have dinner with his wife? Yes. What is the problem here? The problem is, in that moment, in this story, Philip has a badly messed up view of reality. Denise is not his wife. Pat is. You know, when reality gets messed up, it, it makes life horrible. It it, it, it it causes all kinds of problems. This is what it's like to go go all day and never interact with Jesus. You're connected to Jesus all the time, but if you act like Jesus is off somewhere when he when he's not, when he's right by you, you're you're just messing with reality. When Jesus comm- he Jesus is right with you. If you are not acting as though he is, you're living in a twilight zone of foolishness. When Jesus commands us to abide in him, he's telling us to live in the real world, not in some fictional world of our imagination. So how does this look in practice? Well, we encounter Jesus through the means of grace. Abiding in Jesus happens as we read And hear the Bible as we pray and partake of the Lord's Supper. The most potent meaning with Jesus is right here in worship on the Lord's Day. But if Sunday is the only time you read the Bible and pray, you know, that looks more like visiting than abiding. Now, you don't have to be a monk or a Bible scholar to talk to Jesus and read some scripture every day. So you you decide for yourself. What would it mean for you to live as though you were permanently connected to Jesus? Jesus opened this chapter by telling us to abide in him, and then he intensified it by telling us to abide in his love. This is the love that longed for you, that went searching for you, that wooed you, that showers you daily with gifts. This is the love that thinks that you're the most wonderful thing in the world. This is the love that is thrilled with you. This is the love that is always pestering the Father, telling him what wonderful things you're doing, you know, this, this is the love that is sending you gifts every day. This is the love that sends angels to rescue you from your foolishness. The world tells you not, you're not good enough. But Jesus says that he accepts you the way you are. The world tells you that if you had more money and, and, and success, that you could have more money and success, if you'd get your act together. And Jesus tells you that, uh, that he'll work with you just as you are at the present. You are actually, truly abiding in Jesus. Now stop listening to the world. Listen to Jesus. Abide in him. Abide in his love. Accept what he says. And when you abide in Jesus' love, the new commandment is not burdensome. When you abide in Jesus' love, you find unbelievable joy in loving others. When you abide in Jesus' love, you find yourself doing the impossible, loving the worst people and actually enjoying it. When you abide in Jesus' love, you unleash a supernatural love within you, which spills out over everyone you touch. If you are here this morning and do not believe in Jesus, none of this is true for you. You are trapped in the loveless lies of the world, and you'll never escape. But Jesus welcomes everyone who comes to him. This pure, passionate, perfect love can be yours, too when you begin to trust in Jesus. And you can begin right now, or you can talk with one of us elders after the service. The mystery of salvation is that we who believe in Jesus are in him, and he is in us. Jesus has been entering us this hour through the words that I've been speaking, and he will enter us through the bread and wine that I will serve presently. And just as sure as you have heard me speak, Just as sure as you eat and drink the bread and wine, Jesus enters you again, loving you, rejoicing in you, giving you the power to love others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for love, we're starved for love, and we go to great lengths to get love. It sounds too good to be true that you chose us, poor sinful sinners, and that you love us. You called us you gave us new life. You continually give us gifts. You died for us. We admit, Father, that we do not understand your love. We scarcely believe it. But what choice do we have? The, the love of the world will eat us up. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for giving us eternal life and the faith to believe you. And now, Lord, help us to love one another. We have too often believed the lives of the world. We have not loved each other. We repent of these sins We ask you to work new obedience in us by abiding in Christ. We do not want to act as visitors to Christ. Help us to cling to him all day, every day. Help us to abide in his love. We ask these things in the name of him who loves us, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Amen. Amen. Please rise. Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.